Hi there, I'm Roger Maness. Welcome to the Boss Podcast. If you're looking for Bruce Springsteen, this is not the show for you, even though we love him too. But this is the business of Southern sports. The Boss is an acronym. Our guest today will be Reese Davis, the host of ESPN's College Football Game Day. Now, you might feel like you are listening into a personal phone conversation because Reese and I are old friends. I've known him over 30 years. I was in his wedding. We started our careers together in small market television. We're former roommates way back when. So while we are discussing serious things, we will sometimes delve into the silly. You'll hear pop culture references from the TV show The Blacklist to the Fame Recording Studios in Reese's hometown of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. We'll discuss Reese's love life, how he met his wife. But we will also discuss the serious. Who does Reese think is the greatest sports center anchor of all time? We will touch on that. We will chart his career path. How did he find his way to being the host of ESPN's College Football Game Day? And later on, we'll even do some television trivia. Reese is a huge fan, as am I, of the Andy Griffith Show. I think you will be impressed by Reese's volume of knowledge for that show in particular. So uh, please bear with us. Enjoy the show. It's a great conversation between two old friends, but uh, you'll also learn a lot because there's a lot going on in his ESPN conversations and college football game day about how they select the, the city, the campus they want to go to, his, his weekly preparation. That's where we will be discussing the business of Southern sports, but we're also having a lot of fun along the way. So thanks for tuning in. It's time for the show. Let's go. Broadcasting from our studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for the business of Southern sports, or as we like to call it, the boss. The boss is presented by Dirty Girl Mixers. Get your mix fix. And by Rectech Grills. Join the Rectech lifestyle. Now, here is the host of the boss, Roger Maness. How about a big round of applause for our fictional house band? Woo! That's Herschel and the Heismans that comes in under budget because that is royalty-free music here on the Boss Podcast or the Business of Southern Sports. And our guest today really needs no introduction. Uh, he is a very well-known talent at the Worldwide Leader in Sports, ESPN. It's Reese Davis. How are you doing, Reese? Roger, I'm doing great, buddy. How are you? I am fantastic. Just trying to do like everybody else, stay safe through the pandemic. Uh, you are coming to us from your house in Connecticut via Zoom so the uh, connection here is through the interwebs, as we say. How are you and your family doing through this uh, unusual worldwide situation? Oh, we're doing great. We feel very blessed and fortunate. Both of my kids are home and finishing up their semesters in college online, as everyone else in college in the country is doing. But everybody's healthy. And, uh, you know, we would we would like to have a little more normalcy. But at the same time, when uh, you know, my kids are 22 and 19 to be able to have them at home in this setting. Uh, we don't wish that on them because I know that's not the way life is supposed to go right now. But at the same time, we count it as a blessing because this is time that we have together as a family unit that is uh, unusual. And we're trying to trying to enjoy and appreciate that aspect of it as best we can while, you know, still trying to stay safe and and um, help out people who might need it as, uh, as those opportunities come along. Based on their ages, you are not involved in any homeschooling, I would assume? <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not at all. Uh, my, my lack of academic expertise uh, would keep me from doing, doing anything with uh, Princeton University or New York University. I think they would run me out on rails. So uh, was- they, they, they don't even allow me in the same room. Uh, not not the kids. They'd be happy with it. The two universities have asked that I not even get close to the Zoom computer because for fear that I will contaminate it somehow. Well, I do want to tell our listeners that uh, this may seem like a very informal conversation as opposed to a traditional Q&A podcast that seems uh, almost like an interview. It's very conversational. Reese and I have known each other 30 years, Reese. Is, yeah, uh, uh, a little bit more because I moved to I moved to Columbus, Georgia in August of 1988, and so. I would say well, <laughs> we met each other then, and then probably what well, we were roommates probably year and a half after that, a year, year and a half, something like that. Maybe not even that long. Yeah, we know, we so. were, I, I t- often tell people um, 
we were roommates in small market television together right out of college. Um, and, and it was a great town. I, we were in Columbus, Georgia. I loved Columbus. It was great people to work with. We worked at a station that did not have a lot of resources, but we were, putting it mildly. <laughs> we, we were, we were on television every night, having fun, um, kind of going down memory lane. But because of that, you may hear me refer to Reese as RD because that has been his, I've had that nickname for him forever. And sometimes I hear Desmond Howard use it or Kirk Herbstreet. And I'm like, they got it from me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so, it's so clever and insightful. However, did you think of it? Yeah. Well, you can't, you can't, have, initials. you can't have a, you can't have a par T without RD or whatever. But I often tell people, uh, because I've known you so long, I'll say I've known Reese Davis since he was making $10,000 a year and he's not making that anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, as, as the great Raymond Reddington says, I never tire of being correct. You know, <laughs> Raymond Reddington blacklist reference. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, we may go into some TV trivia here later, but, but first I want to, I, because the, the premise of the podcast here is business of Southern sports, but business to me can be the dollars. It can be the deals. It can be the draft picks, but it can also be what play some offensive coordinator calls on third and seven, because it's all business. Tell us, tell folks a little bit about your background, uh, up in the muscle shoals area of Alabama. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a great place to grow up, Raj. I mean, it's a, it's a place that's important to me. And But we lived in several small towns in, in northwest Alabama. My parents were from there, even though I was born in Chicago. My dad was a machinist, and he was working uh, in Chicago because at that time in the mid-60s, you know, people had to go north many times to find work, and they were kind of going back and forth. So when I was, uh, you know, in, I was probably four or five years old, we moved back south for good. And uh, so I grew up in, in three small towns in Guin and Hamilton and then in uh, Muscle Shoals. And, you know, just sort of along the way fell in love, not only with sports. Uh, I tell people, people ask me because of what I do, did you, you know, did you play in college? And I said, no, I always thought that my broadcasting career would come at the end of a long and illustrious playing career. That didn't work out because my talent ran out after high school, although all of my high school teammates would tell you that it ran out a long time before then. <laughs> so, you know, but it, it's, it was, um, I have sort of a traditional, probably traditional Southern background in terms of that, like you were saying, uh, you know, church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and, and close knit communities and, and people who, um, who, you know, cared a lot about each other and the place where they live. So it's, uh, you know, it's something that I'm I'm proud of, and I think has helped mold me into the type of person that I try to be. Well, two things strike me from that comment, um, and you another thing about Reese and I, you will find us getting off on tangents sometimes to drop in a pop culture reference because, as we all know, Reese Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers. They've been known to pick a song or two, <laughs> or they get off so much. Pick me up when I'm feeling blue. Google. You know, it. I, hope, I hope everybody's seen all of the people listening to your podcast. They need. They need to see the uh, documentary, Muscle Shoals. It's the hit recording capital of the world, and I don't say that with one ounce of sarcasm or facetiousness. It's, uh, it, it is vitally important in the history of music, and it's still thriving today. In fact, one of my high school teammates and classmates is a man named uh, Rodney Hall, and Rodney is uh, the legendary Rick Hall's son, and Rodney now runs Fame Recording Studios, and we stay in touch, and, uh, um, you know, so that's – if, if you like music and, you know, I think the biggest misconception is a lot of people that I work with watch the documentary after I sort of, you know, pushed it, you know, you should watch this. They all expected to see country music. There's oh, like no. no country music. There's no country music oh. in, in Muscle Shoals. You know, <laughs> not, not that they couldn't have done it, but it's all, it's a different genre. It's more, you know, rhythm and blues and, um, and early rock and roll. And then one of the other studios branched off and did some Southern rock. So it, and the, the first word spoken on the documentary, if memory serves, by Bono, right? I think that's right. I have seen the documentary. I do not recall that. But uh, what strikes me is like When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge was recorded there. Dwayne Allman was there. The Swampers, of course, refers to the house band. Uh, and mm-hmm. the, the line that Reese just quoted is from Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinnerd. Um, they've been known to pick a song or two, but, uh, this is where if we had a budget, we would insert clips from that song. But <laughs> again, this is, this is a royalty free podcast. Did, did we just say, I mean, the Swampers were a group of studio musicians in Muscle Shoals. Right. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there was a famous story that I think is covered in the documentary and perhaps in, in my 
hearing and memory and retelling of it. Perhaps I'm embellishing to some degree, but um, you know, it was just normal looking guys and Aretha Franklin was in Muscle Shoals to record. And she didn't think that they would work. And she said to Rick Hall, she said, I don't think I can work with those musicians. And he, and I hope I'm not telling the story wrong. If I am just roll with it and find out the real one by Google or something. But, uh, you know, as I recall the story, he said, Rick Hall said to her, well, just listen, if you're not pleased, we'll get you anyone you want. And she listened for (laughs) about two minutes and said, Let's roll. You know, let's make a record, and they and they did. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's just known for its sound, and and some of that is just uh, you know, you know me well. I'm a big Elvis Presley fan, and Southern music. It's just the crossroads of gospel and rhythm and blues and country and Western and rock. And some studios kind of captured that magic in Memphis, Muscle Shoals. Um, you know, all, all sorts of genres of music come out of the South and uh, the fame recording studios. Yeah, we, I didn't even mean to get up on that tangent, discuss that studio, but that's where you're from. And it's like the music, the music is in the earth. It's like just seeps into the communities and people's souls and manifests itself in great little holes in the wall like that. And, uh, but yeah, it's, um, so you had an appreciation for music and sports growing up based on where you were off to the university of Alabama because of your position on game day. I would imagine you get a little bit of blowback every now and then, um, when y'all are commenting on this program or that program because of Alabama's incredible success over the last, well, all time technically, but specifically under Saban here, you know, what kind of negativity do you get from people who might question your objectivity at this point? You, you get it every now and then. I'm, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, right? You get it both ways. You can't, you might as well be honest because I will get a lot of how come you don't rep us the way this broadcaster, that broadcaster might rep his school, you know, and giving them shout outs and, you know, saying roll tide all the time. Let it be known that you're, you know, a big fan of whatever, and then the other side, if you ever do say anything good, which, you know, is pretty easy to do with the success they've had, then it's what you're referring to. You're a homer, you know, you don't like this school, you don't like that school, whatever it might be. But, you know, probably probably Joe Buck has it best, and I think he still has it in his Twitter bio, you know, yes, I hate your team. <laughs> I mean, it's – that. but the thing I've come to realize, Raj, and I try not to let it bother me. I think it used to a little bit more when I was younger. By the time I got to game day, I'd sort of gotten over it. Um, I came to the realization a few years ago that nobody is without a background Nobody is without a connection to a team or a school or a city, depending on what you cover. Everyone has a connection. But if you do what we do for a living, you are called upon to be fair. You're not called upon to be, I am a robot. I have forgotten all that happened in my past. You know, you're not called on to do that. You're called on to be fair. Fans are only called on to evaluate what you say through the prism how does that line up with the way that I think about my team? And how does that line up with the way that I think everybody ought to love my school or my team? Well, that's inherently going to clash from time to time. So, you know, I'm not saying I ignore all of it because I probably have a little bit of a tendency to want everybody to like me if possible. That's impossible. But, you know, we all, we all want that. I think most of us do. Oh, Reese, who, would, who wouldn't like you, Reese? <laughs> well, just check my Twitter feed after game day. You'll find a few. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I think the thing is, is you try to be fair. And as long as you can come out of a show or out of a game that you call at the end, you're like, I was fair. I was fair to the best of my ability. That's, that's it. And the other thing is, unlike Desmond or Kirk or David or uh, someone who, you know, Billis, uh, Alfonso Ellis, someone who had a great career um, and has an obvious attachment to a school from a performance standpoint. People do care about their background. I don't think people care where I went to school. That, now, maybe they care enough to be able to get mad at me if I say things like I've said, like, I believe this dynasty that Saban has established is the greatest in the history of the sport. You know, so people about that, you know, if they're not Alabama people, they get mad about that. But I think that's fair and honest. I wasn't explaining why they should be winning games when Mike Shula was a head coach. You know, I think I was pretty fair then, too. Tell people what you did. So out of college, 
first job was Columbus, Georgia, which is where we met, um, CBS affiliate. You worked there for a few years. Where was your next stop? How did, well, how, did you, be- how did you get to where you are? I had one before that. I was working in Tuscaloosa. We oh, that's right. That's right. Tuscaloosa. That's right. And, uh, but I was, they had given me a choice. I was doing sports and news in Tuscaloosa my, my senior year of college. And they gave me a choice. General manager called me in and said, we, we like your work, but here's the deal. Because it was, you know, it was Alabama. They already had three full-time sports guys. And I was kind of uh, factoring in the fourth. He goes, you can continue to work sports, do, you know, Alabama games on Saturday, maybe Friday night high school football. But we're going to limit you to about um, five, five to ten hours a week max. And some weeks we'll try not to get you any. Or you can work 40 hours a week with the potential for overtime, but you're going to be a news report. So I did, I did that. And the move to Columbus was an opportunity to do some sports. As you remember, when we started, I wasn't even anchoring the weekend shows. You and Mike Salmon uh, had those on lockdown. Um, so I was doing sports and news. I was doing, I think, three days a week of news. And weekends, I was uh, helping you guys with sports. So after I left Columbus, um, I went to Flint, Michigan, a man named Jim Bliker, who was the general manager of the ABC affiliate in Flint. I refer to him as the man who saved my career. Uh, my career was going nowhere in Columbus. Um, you were far too kind about the conditions under which we worked. We worked with wonderful people um, and, and some talented people in our newsroom, for sure. But there were some, uh, as, as the great George Clooney, U- Ulysses Everett McGill um, says. Another well, pop culture reference. Great- yeah, we said we had straightened circumstances <laughs> that was about to lead us on a life of aimless wandering uh, <laughs> before, uh, before, you know, it was it was a place to do news. And um, but I I had uh, become sports director there after you two guys had moved on. And I was sending out tape after tape after tape. And finally, Jim hired me in, in Flint, Michigan. And it was it was the biggest I guess the biggest break would have to be when ESPN hired me from Flint, but I'll tell you what, that was a close second because I think if that didn't happen, uh, I don't think that any of the other things would have happened. So I was only in Flint for 16 months, and I know people know Roger and me and the Netflix documentary Flint Town maybe, and they know how uh, difficult times are there and how desolate it is, and it's tough, and and there's a lot of crime, and all those things are true. But uh, I have a great and deep affinity for that city and for those people there. Because I, as I said, I think Jim saved my career. And so I'm eternally grateful to him for that. Uh, where is Jim these days? Have you stayed in touch he, with him? Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he's retired. He, um, he worked at, and in fact, right. And not to bore you with all this, I hope this is not too boring for your listeners, but right as I, I was only in Flint for 16 months, got the job at ESPN. And just as I was, I remember I'd already turned in my notice. I was on my way and they had a big station meeting to say that Cap Cities had bought our station, WJRT, which means that subsequently, within a year or two, Disney also owned the, the station where I worked previously and it owned ESPN. Um, so until Disney sold that station, Jim worked there and he worked for a little while in South Carolina, but he's moved back to mid-Michigan. He's retired, probably doing some consulting work. And whenever game day goes to Michigan or Michigan State, even though he's an Indiana alum, he and a couple of the couple of the fellows from the station are usually uh, come to the show and I get to get to visit with them. It's always great. So uh, they're, they're, they're great friends. And I, I mean, I tell you, the other people I keep in touch with from there, high school basketball, think about this, Rob. Big, when big was, area. Huge. When I was there, Flint Northern, who eventually won the state championship a month or so after I left, Mateen Cleaves, Robert Smith, who played in the NFL, Antonio Smith, who was also a starter on Michigan State's national championship team, all on Flint Northern. And they had another great scorer that no one will remember, but um, he played college ball and he was a tremendous scorer. He, had, he, he ran into some issues, but named Deontay Harvey. Over at Flint Northwestern, Mo Pete. Flint <laughs> Southwestern, Charlie Bell. I mean, there was some ball being played there. And, I, and I've maintained contact with those guys. In fact, I saw Morris um, just a few months ago when we were at Michigan State and we visited for a while. And it's, uh, uh, it's been it's, – it's like I said, for such a short period of time, I sort of uh, chuckle at myself sometimes the affinity 
that I have for that 16 month period in my life. Well, some of it just outside looking in being your friend all these years, it was a fresh start. You had some resources around you. You were polishing your craft. You were getting reps as you know, you were on the air every night and getting reps. Um, cause we both grew up, uh, you know, we had Southern accents. I still do, but you have really polished yours. Um, I don't, I don't, it's to me when I watch you on TV now, it's, you have a non-discernible accent. Um, and, and so some of that is just the craft of polishing who you were. Um, one of the most impressive things you were able to do was you had just gotten married, uh, right. to a Columbia and, and, yeah. and, and, and she followed you to Flint, Michigan. God bless her. <laughs> you want to, you want to know what true love is? Tell your fiance about six weeks before the wedding that you're leaving your hometown. And even though I sort of took a couple little jabs and, and, and fun ones about the straightened circumstances under which you and I work. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to go back and, and, and reference credit everything. That was from Oh Brother, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Starring George right. Clooney. Because as, as I mentioned, right. recent I will digress into pop culture. So go ahead. I forgot to reference that a minute ago. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my wife was the top salesperson at Channel 3 in Columbus, Georgia. It's probably the best job she ever had. She was so good at her job there. She was making more money than the general manager. I mean, she kept the whole place afloat. We had, after you left, this is true, we ran out of news cart. We were all taking our own cars, no insurance, no nothing other than our personal, which probably wouldn't have covered it if there had been an issue. You know, we were, it was a disaster. And she fixed that. She was able to get a deal to get, she was wow. unbelievable there. She should have so, been a GM. And, and she should have been. But, um, you know, it was a great job for her. It was her hometown. Her family was there. Her dad had business there. You know, that's what she knew. And so six weeks, I'm like, I've got to do this. You know, will you come with me? And she, thankfully, luckily for me, um, she did. And she, she's been um, unbelievable throughout. So it's been, it's been great. She yes. keeps me. She keeps me grounded and keeps me in line, keeps my head from getting too fat, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> all these years later, two kids later, she's still right there with you. God bless her. Yeah, uh, keep this all in line, and, all three of and them. I remember when you, as I recall, when you met Lee, there was a little bit of subterfuge regarding the fax machine to foster, an, foster an introduction, correct? <laughs> I did. I pretended I had to fax some credential requests to our uh, uh, great friend David Housel over at Auburn for a game. And so she was the new, new salesperson in the office. And I really thought she was beautiful because she is. So I wanted to meet her. And, uh, I know that comes as a big surprise to you, Raj. So I pretended, uh, I pretended well, you, not you're, to know how you're, to use you're, it. you're just lucky I backed off and let you have her. <laughs> so, I, um, so I, uh, I walked, I waited until I knew she was still there, but nobody else could be around to help me. So I went to the fax machine. I was like, Hey, do you know how I can't quite figure this out? She came over and uh, showed me how to use the fax machine and, and it went from there. I was going to say, so all you kids out there listening that want to get to ESPN, we're, we're trying to kind of track Reese's career here a little bit of bouncing around from local market to local market. But if you want to get married, I was going to say use some fax machine subterfuge, but they don't know what fax machines are. <laughs> I was about to say, you've been doing all of these things with the pop culture reference. Wait a minute. That's from old brother. Where art thou? You really should stop and have a definition of a fax machine here, depending on how old your audience is. Uh, well, um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Interesting times. We had so much fun there. And as I recall, I was also instrumental in your relationship building because at the time, as a side little gig, I used to perform at a local watering hole called Muldoon's with the Sandy Creek Band um, and, and uh, do a little Elvis, do a little Van Morrison. And as I recall, the spark of romance happened while the Sandy Creek Band and Roger were performing and, and recently might have been in attendance. I, I don't know that uh, and think she's going to walk by in a minute. I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly because I was not aware of it. Maybe, heck, maybe until after we were married. I don't know. But you were singing. So when I finished my show or whatever, however the schedule was, I came to see you sing. Right. So you were there singing and I finished the show or whatever. And I was coming to see you sing, you know, hanging out. And then we, you know, go grab a bite to eat or whatever. So apparently I find out years later that Lee was on a date there. She, she sees me, she sees me come in, but I don't see her. So she tells, she tells Humpy McHumperson, whoever it was she was on the date with. Loser. That, Loser. Yeah, exactly. She tells him she's not feeling well and needs to go home. So she leaves, ditches him, and then comes back. 
Oh, so she came, oh. did she come back to see you or did she come back for our final set? Uh, <laughs> she was unaware you were singing. She came back to see me. Because <laughs> <laughs> we used to rock the house at Muldoon's. Yeah, uh, the, the Sandy... How far off target are we right now? <laughs> well, uh, let's let's do get back to the business of Southern sports. You, okay, you are, but I want to say you're regular Dan Levitard because I was on Dan Levitard's show and somehow one day I started talking about, uh, I wound up talking about crawling under my house as a kid and spraying Coridane, which is now illegal to kill all the bugs and snakes won't cross the line. And some, like, and some brain cells. And some brain cells, yeah. probably. <laughs> I, I wish with all the bugs we have in Connecticut, I wish if somebody's got some Coridane they could send me to spray if I wouldn't get in trouble with Johnny Law. Yeah. I'd, uh, I'd like to spray some and kill some of these bugs. Well, it, it is funny getting back on track here. So after Flint, Michigan, I remember, again, you were starting to get some interest from other, you know, major pro pro sports markets as i recall cincinnati was interested in you and and uh andrea kramer uh gave you some advice that helped you with espn is this correct andrea kirby uh i'm sorry andrea yeah andrea kirby um was used to be an on-air person at abc uh for many years she's an alumnus at alabama um she and and my wife actually were instrumental in getting me there because you know like you mentioned there were several other markets had some opportunities um, and you know, Lee said, my wife said to him, where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go to ESPN. And she said, well, let's try to do that. So in the meantime, I ran across Andrea's name and an alumni publication. I reached out to her because she at the time was a talent coach and consultant for ESPN. And, um, so I reached out to her and she looked at my tape basically as a favor since I went to Alabama, as she did and said, um, she calls me and said, why haven't you sent this? And I said, well, you know, I'm in market, you know, 58 or whatever we were in Flint right now. I assumed that I, you know, I had to get to Atlanta or Chicago or Boston or something, you know, for ESPN to take notice. And she said, you have this screwed up beyond imagination. And I said, what do you mean? And remember when this was, this was 1990, I guess, 94, because I started in 95. So it was late 94. And she said, if you ever get to Boston or LA or Miami or Atlanta or someplace, she said, you'll never go to ESPN. I said, why not? And she said, you won't take the pay cut. You know? <laughs> so at the time, you know, at the time local was where it was at in terms of, you know, financially, uh, she said, send the tape. So I sent it and it, uh, it worked out. So both of them were instrumental in sort of um, guiding me. And it's one of the reasons I try to, if people reach out to me and you can't always hit every one of them, I'm no Doc Emmerich who seems to be able to respond to everybody that reaches out, but the people who want to make it, I try to guide them because I felt like that I was, you know, just kind of reaching in the dark and, you know, trying to run into something and figure out how to do it. And uh, I was probably fortunate that it worked out the way it did, but um, certainly Andrea, Andrea and her advice was huge. And I think, uh, Lee just encouraging me to focus on what I wanted instead of, you know, bouncing here and there and, you know, wherever it might be and trying to hopscotch your way up the ladder. And one of the things that's interesting to me, again, from my recollection, so I'll ask you to make sure I'm, I'm corroborating this correctly, is when ESPN hired you, and because that's been 25 years ago now, people may not remember this. I distinctly remember ESPN2 was launched with a totally separate and distinct brand and vibe, and they wanted to keep the two brands separate. In fact, as I recall, ESPN Sports Center was supposed to be a little more straight-laced, suit and ties, but you guys on ESPN2 were not supposed to wear jackets. Your shirts were supposed to be colorful, that type of vibe. Am I remembering that correctly? And then after a few months, they just realized, well, we've got too many live events. The brand is going to be the brand. And everything just started cross pollinization, and they just just ran with it. Yeah, it. I mean, that this is one of the things, Raj, that I I listened to closely when I was hired. I was told, "Do not come in asking to do Sports Center uh, because we are doing just as you said, trying to create these different brands." If you you know the the whole, it's sort of silly if you think about it now. But if you wore a jacket, don't wear a tie. If you wear a tie, don't wear a jacket. And denim is good. Leather is better. You know, <laughs> I never went full Keith Olbermann leather jacket, but, you know, there was some denim involved. Um, so we got to a point where the show that I started doing the Sports Smash on, Sports Smash updates at the top and the bottom of the hour as part of the old Sports Night show that Stuart Scott and Susie Colbert uh, hosted. Kenny Main was a part of the Sports Smash with me, and we 
the two of us and uh, a couple others would would do bits and pieces and features and different things for sports night. They took that show off the air because of what you're saying, but I was still following my instructions of don't ask, you know, don't, don't go ask to do sports center. And to make a very long uh, story short, it almost got me bounced out of there before I started. I finally had to go to basically every executive in the building and find out why they were questioning whether to pick up the option of my contract after one year. And they said, well, we just don't know what to do with you. I said to our, our president, uh, Howard Katz, who's now with the NFL, he said, well, you know, when I eventually got to him, because, you know, the show's not there and we don't know if we're going to do the smash. And I said, uh, I said, Howard, I said, I want to do Sports Center." I said, but I was told not to ask to do Sports Center." And uh, he said, well, you know, if they want to give you a shot at Sports Center, that'd be great with me. And I said, well, nobody comes here to do the sports smash. You're just hoping to keep your head down and keep grinding and get noticed. And it didn't work out that way. And then fortunately for me, they gave me a shot to do sports center and it went well for a couple of times. And, uh, and they gave me a chance. And it's, um, you know, a story that I like to tell because I, I, I think the best, the best guy all told, um, all facets, there are a lot of great sports center anchors, a lot of influential ones. I think the guy who did it better, in all facets was Keith Olbermann. Um, and after my first sports center, 2 a.m. sports center on a Saturday night, I came back up to my desk and, you know, the message light was on, you know, I had a message from somebody. And uh, remember I had no relationship whatsoever with Keith. I'd met him, uh, you know, I'd seen him around. I talked to him the day I was hired when uh, the lady who was taking me around, showing me where we got her mail. She introduced me and Keith looked at me and said, run, there's still time to save your career and turned and walked away. That was like, I hadn't said one word on ESPN yet. So, you know, fast forward nine, 10 months later, I get a chance to do sports center and the message lights on. I figure it's, you know, my wife or my mom or, you know, my sister or whatever. And I pick up the phone, the message is from Keith. And uh, he said, uh, he said, I watched your show. I assume that you want to be part of this rotation. I'll make sure they know that on Monday morning. Oh, this is KO click. I'd never had a conversation with him and that I had such respect for his ability, Roger, that that validation uh, gave me a little more confidence. And then it, it were, I, I don't know to this day, I've never asked Keith if he actually did go in and say, Hey, he needs to be in the rotation. And if he, you know, because Keith sometimes as you might have read can get a little contentious with management. So I don't know that, <laughs> that would have helped or it would have hurt, but um, I don't know to this day if he did it or not. But the fact that that was the way he reacted uh, meant a lot to me, and uh, I, I'm, you know, happy to still call call Keith a friend after all of these years. And I do, and I'm not saying it because he was kind to me. Uh, there have been I've worked with you know unbelievable guys anchoring that show: Dan Patrick, Boomer, Scott Van Pelt, Stewart, all magnificent, all, all magnificent in their own way. And you're splitting hairs, but to me, for my taste, and just funny, insightful, ad lib, pick up on anything, capture a moment. You know, writing is unbelievable. <laughs> you know, uh, Keith, I think, is is the guy to me that I would, you know, certainly, I hate the Mount Rushmore thing, but if you put him out there, he's, his, his face is right up there at the top to me. Well, did it dawn on you that if he was leaving you a message at two or three in the morning on a Saturday night, he was probably drinking? And that might have influenced his opinion of your performance. Oh, God, that, that could that could very well be. Uh, that, that could have that could have been the issue altogether. I'm teasing. And and what's interesting again for anybody that's too young to remember this, the, the Sports Center is still a key franchise for ESPN. But in the since the internet of the last 15, 20 years, you know, so so much information gets to people so quickly now. Sports Center used to be must see TV. It was huge. Uh, Big franchise, obviously still is, but much bigger in the 90s, simply because of, yeah. it was the source of information. It's where we had to go to see highlights. Um, it's where we had to go to get breaking news and things like that. So I understand, just to put it in perspective, the desire for every ESPN talent to want to get on a sports center was big back then. Yeah. Um, but you are now the 
face of arguably their biggest franchise. In, in my humble opinion, being from college football country, the game day shows both basketball and football. Um, and I know you bounced around inside ESPN doing some NASCAR things, NASCAR tonight, and you did the late night uh, college football show with Mark May and Lou Holtz and, and just, you know, was a solid star in the making all this time. Um, how did the game day situation unfold uh, to come into you to come your way? Um, you know, I think I'd established my place in the sport through that time in the studio. Uh, I was there. I kind of lose count, but I think full time uh, I was probably the studio host sort of in the nerve center command central for college football for like 16 years, I think uh, prior to um prior to taking game day, 10 of those with Mark and Lou for the last 10. And then, you know, Mark and I were, Mark and I for 14 years together in the studio. Um, so I thought I had established a place in the sport, Roger. And, uh, you know, it was what I wanted, you know, um, wanted to be able to the most prominent role possible uh, that was available in the sport when it came time, uh, to negotiate a new deal. And, um, uh, it was a situation where I think timing aligned in a lot of ways. Um, and I had unbelievable representation and a guy who is not only my agent, but a very close friend and Nick Khan. And he helped guide me through the process. And, you know, we, we got to a point to where, you know, okay, you need, you need to lay out a plan for Reese. And, uh, and they did. And that was, and that was kind of how it came about the game, the game day aspect of it, because, you know, there was a one year where Chris did both game day and the game on a Saturday night. And that was when I was in the last few months of my deal, we were negotiating and, um, you know, there are a lot of factors that had to come together for it to go in that direction and, you know, whatever, um, offer and, and situation they could present. And they were, uh, they were, Everything they told me, which I know you don't hear this a lot in television, every time they told me, everything they told me in that last year during uh, the negotiation came to be. And it couldn't have, uh, I couldn't have had a negotiation that was handled in a more forthright manner. I credit, uh, I credit them for that, ESPN management, certainly credit Nick for that. Uh, so, you know, it worked out, um, you know, it worked out really well. Well, and it's, it's a dream chair, again, because I know you so well you know, growing up loving college football, just in our DNA. Uh, mm-hmm. in fact, as I recall you growing up in Northwest Alabama, one of your big heroes was, uh, was Archie Manning, yeah. uh, among others. Uh, you yeah. know, we all have the Southern football lore that, you know, listening to radio before our childhoods, you know, yeah. listening to the radio of other teams, not even our team, just to listen to the games before every game was televised. But, but now you're in the chair. Um, and I know, uh, I know one of your pet peeves is when people call you a traffic cop as the host right. of that show. Yeah. You're not a traffic cop. I tell people, you tell me if I'm right or wrong or if this is your pet peeve. I equate your job to that of, as, a, as a basketball point guard. You bring the ball up, you run the offense, you distribute it, but you can take a shot too because you're the point guard. Yeah. And you run the offense and you can throw it to Kirk, you can throw it to Pollock, Coach Corso, Dez, whomever, but you can yeah. take a shot because you're the guard, point guard. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. Point guard, quarterback, and you understand it, Roger, because you're really good at it. You you know how to do it too, and it's um, I think the people who are most successful in this role, and it's you know it's up to the audience whether they deem you or me successful or whether they enjoy it. But for my sensibilities, the people who do it well are involved in the conversation, but have a good sensibility of when to of when to take that shot or when to. You know, if you want to keep the football analogy, when to dump it off and when and when to throw and when to throw the skinny post and when to pull it down and run. You know, it's the it's that sensibility, I think, that and look, you're not 100 percent. You know, throw picks sometimes, strip sack, fumble, turnovers, you know, <laughs> air balls, whatever metaphor you want to use. Right. It's going to happen from time to time. But it's that sensibility of knowing how to weave all of your guys, all of your people together and to allow them to disagree. Um, 
know when, know how to handle the conversation and know when to make those types of points that you're talking about. Um, you know, I'm not going to argue with David Pollack about proper, uh, proper hand placement on a swim technique. That's, that's out of my lane, but David and I can argue forever about whether, um, you know, Jake Fromm or Justin Fields should have been the starting quarterback or whether Kirby should have gone for it on third down or, or, well, we probably both agree that he shouldn't have faked the punt against Alabama. But other than that, you know, you can argue about things like that forever. And, um, you know, and, and my opinion is just as valid as his and, and those type, that's where you pick your spots, I think, but you do it respectfully. And you also know that in your role as the, as the host, you have to know when when's enough. You know, you have to know when you take those shots. When do you let it stand what you said and that's enough? You know, and maybe sometimes that might appear that you're letting the other guy get the last word in, and maybe that's true sometimes. But I think there's a sensibility that makes it comfortable for people at home. At least at least that's the goal. Well, and also what the, the viewer is not aware of, while that's all going on. You've also got producers in your ear telling you that the next story, because you're heavy in time is killed, or we've got to go to this person or that person. You've got 5,000 people behind you yelling and screaming, the the fans, (laughs) you've got a variety of weather conditions. And so you've got all this going on, yet trying to maintain the cohesion and the chemistry on set and you do it flawlessly. That's why you are where you are. And I'm where I am. You have 10,000 people at your show and I'm sitting in my office here at home doing this show. (laughs) (laughs) The thing thing is, and I don't say this just because you're my friend, you, you, you could do this. You're, you, you've always been an immensely talented guy on air and you know, there, there are some aspects of it that repetition helps, but I've also been fortunate in that um, I have, I've had really, really good producers on uh, game day football and basketball. You know, a guy who's now an executive, who's not in the chair anymore, but did the transition year. And he and I worked together in basketball for a number of years too, was Lee Fitting, who with all due respect to all of the producers we've had who are phenomenal now, he was masterful in doing the things that, that you've talked about. And, you know, that, that helps when you, you know this too, when you have, Complete confidence, which I also do in our producer now, Jim Gallero, who's terrific. Um, when you have complete confidence in what that guy's telling you, you know, in terms of we got to kill this, we got to not kill this. And sometimes Jim and I will argue during the show, you know, Kirk will be talking. He's like, I've got to kill the Oklahoma discussion. And I'm like, no, you can't kill that, you know, and we'll be going back and forth and we can come to an agreement sometimes during the show, you know, and sometimes you have to trust, you know, if he pushes back and says, I RD, I can't. You have to get me to break. You know, we're getting close to the top of the hour. We're getting across the top. We can't be in break. You've got, you can't pay me out to ground like this. Then you've got to trust it. You know, and, and you also sometimes, if there's a breaking story, um, I remember when JT Barrett got in trouble. Uh, you know, he went to pick up a teammate or something. He, they were all, Ohio State was off that week. He'd had a couple of drinks and he, you know, he got, uh, he got caught at a, at a, one of those check play, checkpoint things or something that broke like as we were coming on the air and fitting Lee fitting was in the chair then. So I had complete trust in him. Our new, I had complete trust in our news department and they were getting the information to Lee. And this rarely happens. Surprisingly rarely happens in sports television, the way we you see it on the old movie broadcast news where they're telling you, and then you have to, you don't just regurgitate it, but they're telling you the information and you have to get it out in a coherent manner. That case it was, you know, I knew a few minutes before that JT had gotten, you know, that there had been some issues. Kirk had, had found out from some connections, but we didn't have the details. I was getting the details in my ear, as I was saying, and you have to have complete trust in those folks. And I've been very fortunate that I've got great people with me to do that. Well, and all, all while the, the, the zoo of the show is going on around you, the, the noise and the weather and all of that, the, the team of, of Kirk, Des, Pollock, Coach, Maria, and, and whomever. It, it seems like a really good team. So this is just me and you talking. Who's a jerk? <laughs> you know what? We don't, we don't really have any. Uh, I mean, I know. I'm look, teasing. I've met them. I know you are, time. but I think that's one of the things, kidding aside, that's why it works. I mean, you, you include Rinaldi and Gene Wojciechowski and Jen Latta. 
and you know all of the the people that are part of it, the people behind the scenes. We've if people on the air or off are jerks, they're not lasting on that show. Uh, you know, they will will have a move along. You know, and so that that's a, that's very fortunate for us. I'm sure. I mean, it's a fluid situation with the pandemic and um, things are getting canceled and they're trying to figure out a way to reschedule. Who knows what college football will look like, but what kind of plans are y'all making? Because your show requires live, live crowd there typically for the energy and the enthusiasm and the passion to represent the sport. Are y'all having plans? A, B, C, D, E, F, G being developed right now based on whatever might or might not happen. I'm sure that the executives are, but it hasn't, we've done nothing more than sort of talk about it as a group. What if, and I think where we land and the only correct answer to this Raj is I don't know, you know, that's the only, because no one does right Right. now, but here's how we've always looked at it. It is great to have an awesome crowd. I mean, the energy and the adrenaline that you get from that is second to none. And we always want that, but it is not necessary to have a good show. You know, and we, you know, every year we do, um, I think we have to call it something else because of sponsorship deal, speaking of business and sports, but we do a, basically a game day show, New Year's morning from inside the Rose Bowl. There's nobody there. And a lot of times that those shows foster a lot of great discussion. Now you do, to be fair, you have tangible playoff things to discuss and the Rose Bowl coming. So that lends itself to it. Um, but you know, I think we can still put on a great show if there are games played. Our preference would obviously be to have that type of atmosphere because it's uh, it, it's great for the show. It's part of the fabric of the sport, and we don't want to lose that. But obviously that comes secondary behind the health and well- welfare of people. Speaking of the business and how you take care of your business, just run us through, forget pandemic, what's a normal routine game day week for you of your preparation, your travel, where are you on what days? Are you home? When do you get to the city of choice? And how are how are the how are the um, locations selected? Um, you know, a week or two out. Okay, it's only we might have a good idea, but it's never announced until um, at best Saturday night. Um, you know, before the following week, it has pushed in. There've been a couple that have pushed in to Monday. I think one one year maybe the year we went to Philadelphia to um, Independence Hall for Notre Dame Temple, that might have pushed into Tuesday because we were figuring things out. But typically it's announced on and decided Saturday night, Sunday morning. Sometimes that's a really easy thing to do. And a lot of times we're all up and on, uh, usually not a conference call. Sometimes there might be some individual calls um, among some people. Um, Management's great about soliciting our input on it, but mo- more times than not, it's a text chain going on. People, you know, a, a small group of us uh, presenting our positions on it, what we think, um, and then the decision is made. And the decision is not always which two teams are the two highest ranked, the highest ranked matchup. Uh, you try not to look too far down the road, but you can look at something and say, you know. For instance, well, you know, Florida Auburn is a is a great matchup this week. But it looks, you know, we've got Georgia at Auburn in two weeks, and this week we probably have something else that's similar. If you know, if it's close, you probably will look ahead a little bit. Not that we're averse to it. you. We've gone same place twice in a year before. We can we can do that. That's not a big deal. But you, it, it's sort of a balance of everything. It's a balance of not just the highest ranked teams, but it can be the best story of the week. You know, sometimes a story uh, or something, a story that needs to be told at some point in the season, like when we've gone to um, James Madison, which I've gone to a couple of times. We went to South Dakota State uh, here for um, the North Dakota State game. You know, there are stories like that that you find opportunities to tell to kind of, break it up a little bit every now and then. So some, you try, it, it's a little bit of a feel thing. Um, you know, I know some people think it's driven by what network the games are on. It's not. Um, you know, from a business standpoint, if you have, it just makes sense. It's obvious if you have two great games, 
both are equal, both would be great atmospheres, and one's on ESPN or ABC and the other one's not, well, you're obviously going to lean to the one that's on your network. But if there's a game that it's this level and, uh, you know, and it's on another network, we've shown time and time again, we'll go there. So it's, it's a combination of best story. How's a, how's a season layout? Where have we been already? Where do we think we're likely to be in the next two, three weeks after that? All of those things factor in when we're making the decision on Saturday night or Sunday morning. And what is your personal weekly routine? The, the beauty of football is it, with the exception of the Thursday night game, but the Saturday schedule is there's, there's a consistency to it uh, week in, week out. What is your normal routine for preparation and when do you arrive and things like that? Well, you, in terms of preparation, uh, usually the first conversations about the next week or some brief ones on Saturday after the show at some point in the afternoon, but usually we spend time, you know, watching games. I almost always stick around uh, for the game where we are. Um, by Sunday, you know, we'll start. There will be uh, there will be a pretty good email chain among uh, the producers, me and Chris Felica. Usually, Kirk's very involved in that. Also, uh, producer and I will usually have a lengthy conversation on Monday morning, just the two of us, kind of laying out what we think things ought to look like. One of the things that I do on Monday morning, sometimes I do it on Sunday night. Um, as I go and review the show, uh, the entire three hours, take notes throughout and send out notes to the group, things I like, things I didn't like, things I think we ought to do better, um, you know, where we missed the mark, where we didn't, uh, try to be encouraging. Why did this happen? Why did that not happen? Uh, should we think about things? Whatever it could be. Well, there's a, I would say just sort of my nature. There's a lot of attaboys in, uh, in my note, but I also, if I don't like something, I try to say so. And, you know, so I send that out usually on Monday morning. And then by then everybody reads it, maybe somebody responds. And then by noon on Monday, we've kind of moved, we've moved on. And um, I, I describe it, Raj, I don't have a set number of hours to schedule. I just describe it as a lifestyle. You're, you're, you're sort of immersed and engrossed in college football all week. You know, there'll be, we'll have a conference call on Tuesday among uh, a few of us, uh, Jim and I, Jim Gallero, the producer, we are in uh, constant communication, email, text, calls, you know, you name it. We're, we're constantly um, communicating about this. Um, I'm, I'm talking to the guys a lot. I talk to Kirk a lot because Kirk is, Kirk is such a good partner. I'm, I'm very fortunate to have Kirk and Billis in my two shows because they – there's nothing in the sport that will throw them. And they're so, uh, they're so good on TV. They're very different from personality standpoints and just uh, the way they view life. But both are, are brilliant guys and tremendous communicators in different ways and great guys. You know? So I'm lucky to have them. And you know, Kirk has a great sensibility because of his years on the show and his passion for the sport. So I spent a lot of time in addition to you know, the producers and, and Felica, who's, you know, like an encyclopedia of, of stuff and has sort of morphed that knowledge into his on-air role, which is, you know, really a huge part of our show. So I spend a lot of time. Uh, I, I don't it's funny. I communicate. It's weird. You know, you find different things that you communicate with different people in different ways. Felica and I email. We don't talk on the phone very often. You know, and usually if we text, it's like some kind of joke. Uh, you know, like we're texting jokes, but we email about the show. Kirk and I will be text or phone call almost always, you know, and Jim and I are like, I don't know how you des- describe it. It's all of it. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of all the same. So I'll leave on Thursday, usually Thursday mid morning, try to get there and do some work on Thursday afternoon. Um, go experience a little bit of what the vibes like in town on uh, Thursday nights. Then Friday, we'll have a production meeting, usually at nine or nine thirty local time. I spent an hour, an hour and a half. Kirk and I usually have some segments that we have to record for ABC affiliates and for Sports Center, And then I go back and, and grind. And then usually, um, you know, I don't, I don't go out on Friday nights hardly ever unless there's some type of appearance or event. And it's usually short. And you know, I usually stay in my room and do DoorDash or room service and, and just kind of go over stuff and watch, all, watch every frame of video that's going to be on the show and prepare we don't do a prompter or anything like that but i still write out um 
leads to stories and different things. And I don't memorize them. I just write them out. So I kind of have gone through the show and what I'd like to say in my head. And then when the time, when the time comes, then, you know, unless it's particularly sensitive, I, I know what I want to talk about. And then I just try to say it. And then, then you just try to capture the energy in the moment uh, when the show's go. Well, and that's another impressive thing about the show that people may not know. No teleprompter. No prompter. There's yeah. no stinking teleprompter. Reese Davis doesn't need no stinking teleprompter. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, is I think a lot of people in our business look at that as some type of badge of honor. I look at it more as a practical thing because what I've found over the years is that, you know, analysts rarely use tele. Maybe some other networks at ESPN, the analysts don't use teleprompter. Of course, anyway. because it's supposed to be off the cuff. Right. Yeah. And, they're, and they're talking about what they see in the video and all that kind of stuff. I've found that when analysts, when analysts are in a position where there's something on the screen up there, like a, a, a in prompter, they're wondering, am I supposed to talk? You know, and there, it creates a little hesitancy. Plus, I think it just makes it more, it just makes it more conversational. So, you know, we, there are times when you'd love to have one, man, when it's, a, you know, when it's a, an NCAA, um, you know, NCAA case or a legal issue or, sure. you know, something very serious, you'd like to be extraordinarily precise and do it. But, and I think it's, a, I think it's a fair trade-off. Most of us can, can handle that. Well, you, you mentioned some of your preparation. I would encourage people to go follow you, your social media, because occasionally during the season, you will post some of that behind the scenes stuff that you're doing that is compelling to the fan of that show and to college football, whether it's your preparation or a segment coming up in the show or just the behind the scenes of the crowds and the security or whatever it is, you know, your golf cart ride to the set, <laughs> things like that. But that that's, that's compelling content. Uh, so I would encourage people to go follow you on social media. What people also may not know about you as, as we come down the stretch here is uh, you're, you're quite an aficionado of some television trivia. Do you recall Reese, what we used to call when we were rooming together 30 years ago, what we used to call the best hour on television? For sure. It was uh, it was the Andy Griffith show, I think, at 2 Eastern on WGN from Chicago, followed by the Dick Van Dyke show. Yes. Hour television. The best but hour I television. I have to say the Dick Van Dyke show, while good, was sort of riding the coattails of the Andy Griffith show. Uh, yeah. And as I recall, either before it or after it, uh, sometimes if we would if we had a two-hour gap, uh, this might have been more me, but they would also rerun uh, Charlie's Angels. So it was kind of yeah, – yeah, I didn't a, love that as much. I mean, it was a well, Cheryl Ladd. I was going to watch it if it was a Cheryl Ladd episode. <laughs> um, so who was who was who was the best Charlie's Angel? I don't mean most attractive. I mean, like, who was the best salute? Oh, I think the brains of the outfit was Kate Jackson as Sabrina Duncan. <laughs> yeah, I, I do too, and I, I think I think she's a product of uh, the great state of Alabama too, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I give it the TV trivia, but you mentioned Andy Griffith, so. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a, a so a few, some Andy Griffith trivia that I have looked up here. Some of it I was doing it off off my head, and then I went to look it up to confirm it. Um, but but uh, Reese and I share a love of the Andy Griffith Show. Uh, mm-hmm. In addition to lots of pop culture, you know, Reese quotes, "Oh brother, where art thou?" All the time because ain't this place just a geographical oddity? Exactly yeah. two weeks from everywhere. You know, you know, my son, you know, my son is a history major, and at Princeton to finish, you have to write a thesis, and it. You know, he wrote his on the political influence of W. Lee O'Daniel, who was a Texas governor and uh, and United States senator from the state of Texas. Fascinating. And it was amazing as he did his research and a different thing for this you know paper that I can't wait to read the whole thing. The real it's the real life Pappy O'Dan. Pappy O'Dan from Old Brother Brother Arthur. Yeah, yeah, it really was. But I digress. You're, you're gonna you're gonna stump me with Andy Griffith's trivia. Actually, I'm not. I, I tried to go easy on you here, like, uh, and and I may not know all the answer to this, but give me uh, and Andy Griffith fans. Hope you'll know these as well. Give me three of Andy's girlfriends. Oh, three of Andy's girlfriends. There was the. I'm going to be very controversial here. There was the there was the worst girlfriend, which was Helen. Uh, there was I would the concur. Best girl, there was the uh, uh, best girlfriend, which was uh, Ellie. Miss the, Ellie, yeah, Ellie Walker. Druggist. And then um, uh, Peg was also an excellent girlfriend. Peg, he probably should have stayed with Peg because he and Ellie fought a lot, and Peg Peg came from money, so he made it. He made a dire mistake because 
Helen, I never, I never quite understood. Helen, that. Helen was, seemed a little cold to me. Um, yeah, and, no, I didn't, I didn't get that. Uh, but he, he eventually, the character ended up marrying Helen. I know. Um, I, and Nurse Peggy, yeah. Nurse Peggy, by the way, was played by Joanna Moore, who is a native of Georgia, I believe. Oh, is she? Who okay. is the mother of, in real life, Tatum O'Neill? She was really? she was married to Ryan O'Neill. Oh, wow. uh, I'm going okay. deep down to the trivia here you with you. Going deep down the well. Give me uh, through the course of the show, Barney mm-hmm. Fife had reference. They, they weren't thinking about reruns at the time, so sometimes their scripts were not. You know, uh, they didn't go back and reference an old script. To I, know what, I know what you're going to ask. I'm trying to what, think. Go what, ahead. What are what are three references to Barney's middle name? Sometimes it was a name. Sometimes it was initial. Well, I know it's Bernard P. Fife. That's one. Yes. Um, Ah, you got me on that. I can't remember. I know I'm going to know when you say it, but I don't. I don't know now. Bernard Milton Fife and okay, Bernard know. Oliver Fife. I remember that Bernard Oliver Fife. I didn't remember Milton though, but Bernard P. Fife. I think was that the most common. Probably, one? yeah. And when, when he when they went to the episode where they went out of town and they checked in at the hotel, Barney registered as Barney Fife, M.D. Andy looked over his shoulder and saw it and said that the the. the Desk clerk said, "Okay, here's your key, Doctor Fife." And Andy was taken aback. MD, what did what did it stand for according to Barney? Mayberry deputy. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't write that any better. What were the names of the two fun girls from Mount Pilot? Um, uh, Daphne and Skippy. <laughs> and a boy. Uh, what was the name of Barney's landlady? Uh, before or after he was drunk. <laughs> This is Mendel Bright when he was sober, but then after he'd gotten into the hard cider, uh, A, a stranger comes into town. Two, he wants to marry Mrs. Mendel Bright. I I thought you were trying to ask me a trivia question there. Um, What was the name of the man in a hurry? Uh, Malcolm Tucker. Boom. (laughs) You excel at this. Did uh, you have a favorite episode or anything? Oh man, so many great ones. I think the I think the popular one to say is something that had a, a secondary meaning, like Opie the Birdman. But basically, I think I'll have to take uh, I'll have to take Mountain Wedding because I believe that was the first Ernest T. Bass episode, wasn't it? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, probably, yeah. Well, before we go here, you don't have to go out in the woods to look for Ernest T. Bass because the pestilence <laughs> find you. That's right. Uh, um, he's a nut. <laughs> um, don't you do an Ernest T. impression? Oh, chew my cabbage twice. No, it's no, you can't. You know, on on an, on an early date, my wife. Uh, convinced me to do that in the Waffle House, and some, and by some miracle, she decided to stay with me anyway. It's me, it's me, it's Ernest T. I, I, I ain't talking, I ain't talking more. You asking more, I'm balking. <laughs> Want to hear me sing eating goober peas? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Andy Griffith Show, man! If you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's awesome. Um, well, Reese, thanks for joining us. I've taken up far too much of your time and hopefully we can have you back on later. Um, any, any parting thoughts from Connecticut? Um, any hopes for football season? Uh, hopeful and optimistic, but you don't know yet. So we'll, we'll just wait and see. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to play at some point. It might be modified. Maybe, maybe the crowds will be modified. Maybe the calendar will be modified, but I, you know, I'm still hopeful that something will uh, allow us to have some type of season uh, this fall. Um, that's that's just my hope. I'm not giving you any inside scoop or anything like that. And I don't think anyone knows. But fortunately, broadcasters and football coaches won't have a lot to say about that. In fact, we won't have – neither group will have anything to say about it. It'll be leaders and medical professionals and, and doing what's best for the safety of the people. It, it, is, it is interesting to make one final point to have to watch college football coaches not be in total control because you know they love being in total control of their oh, programs. I, I mean, it's yeah, – it's, uh, it's a new world for them uh, because they – and I think they exist in a bubble that, you know, we as, as fans and just a whole enterprise and the industry of college football has created. And, and it's probably a good – object lesson for them and us that while they're great at what they do and they've had 
tremendous influence on, on many young people in their lives. They don't need to control everything. You know, they're not right about everything, you know, so they're not, they're not the moral arbiters and, the, you know, the decision makers for all this wrong and right. So it's probably a, a good recalibration in that respect. But, uh, uh, you know, certainly we're hopeful that they can get back to doing what they do best. Soon. And if they're back, that means you guys will be back and hopefully the crowds will be back by that time. Cause it's a great show. And, uh, uh, you're just a part of the fabric of, of American culture hosting that show because college football is so deeply ingrained in, in, uh, in sports fandom across this country. So thank you for your time, Reese. Um, hopefully we can have you back on, um, sometime later on. I do appreciate it. Good. To, always good to see you old friend. You bet, Raj. Always great to see you, buddy. Tell the tell the wife and kids, Raj says, hey, and I'm going to have Herschel and the Heismans play us out. Again, that is our fictional house Are band. Are you going to sing with them? No, no it's just <laughs> it's just royalty-free because the budget is so low. Ladies and gentlemen. The brown-eyed girl from the people, Raj. Come on. <laughs> Again, that would, that would, that would, some money would go to the Van Morrison estate if I tried to sing some of that. Uh, but I did sing it at Muldoon's Bar 30 years ago. <laughs> many many nights uh so again thanks for listening rd thanks for your time appreciate it and we're gonna have herschel and the heismans play us out the boss has been brought to you by dirty girl mixers get your mix fix and by rec tech girls join the rec tech lifestyle the boss podcast is a copyrighted presentation of big dog productions incorporated you can find us online at bigdogproductions.tv for more episodes of the boss please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or log on to the boss podcast.net